0: The following message is from God's Word, taught during a time of corporate worship at Bridge Baptist Church. If you would like more information, feel free to contact us or look us up on the web at www.bridgebaptistchurch.com. We want to thank you for joining us during this time of study from God's Word. Take a moment in prayer now and ask God to open your mind and prepare your heart to hear His Word. If you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse nine today, I'm just going to move this back a little bit. We're going to be looking at verses nine and 10 today. Uh, originally, we're going to be going all the way down uh, to verse 11, but um, because we have the younger kiddos in here today, I thought I'd keep it a little bit short, and we will break this up into two different messages, one to be looked at uh, today and then one to be looked at um, next week. So we're going to pick it up again, reading in the context. We're going to pick it up here in chapter. One, we're going to read verses 3 all the way to 11 so that you can understand sort of what Paul is saying here. The letter to the church at Philippi is one of Paul's prison letters. He wrote this letter while he was in prison, and uh, so he had a lot of time for writing and carrying on correspondence and things of that nature. And it is interesting that during his time in prison, the prayers he prays for the church are not you know, that they would have a happy life and that everything would go smooth and perfect. But over and over and over again, as we're looking at the way that Paul is moved by the Spirit to pray for the churches, he is moved to pray for their spiritual maturity. And that's what we see here today. So we're going to pick it up in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, Paul was happy that this church was working with him to make God's name famous throughout the, uh, throughout the world at that time. Verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you would, bow with me for just a quick word of prayer. Lord, we see here how Paul yearns with the affection of Christ for this church in Philippi. He has such a burning passion for them, Lord. He loves them so deeply. God, I wonder, Lord, do we love each other the way that Paul loved this church at Philippi Lord, only you can search our hearts and know us. And I just pray that you, if you find our affections too weak, I pray, God, that you would kindle a passion for us, for each other, in us, for each other. God, I just pray that we would see each other not merely as people who sit in the pew next to us or people that go to the same church as us, that we just kind of were there to sing songs with them on a Sunday afternoon. But God, I pray, Lord, that we would realize that Every single one of us is so loved by you that you died for every single one of us individually. That you love us that much. And as we contemplate that, we would be moved as we love you to love each other that same way. I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us this afternoon that our love would abound more and more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now. For the kiddos in the room, most of you are aware it's that season in which we get dressed up in weird outfits and we go door to door and we basically threaten our neighbors in order to make them give us some candy. Anybody know what that's called? Anybody? Th- Thanksgiving. Wow. No, not quite. How about you? know? What's it called? Halloween. Okay. Now, we, we don't threaten in my house. We don't go door to door and threaten my neighbors uh, for candy. Uh, we just go out and buy it the day after Halloween when it's all, when it's all on sale. And then we have lots of it. We have an abundance of it. I have here uh, a, uh, a, a jack o' lantern, that's what I call it, a pail for going around and going trick or treating, and it's chock full of candy. Now, that's not as full of candy as it could be, but it's pretty, pretty full. And I got to tell you, I really, really enjoy it. Uh, I'm particularly a peanut butter chocolate kind of guy, and so I really, I really dig the Reese's and I, I go for the, uh, the buttercups and the, the Reese's pieces and, and things of that nature. And so, uh, I, uh, I love this candy so much, even though I have a, a full bucket full of it over there, I like this candy so much. Now, I like you guys, don't get me wrong. I love you, you're, you're good people and all that. Um, but I, I think I would prefer, that's going to sound bad, I would prefer just to eat the whole bucket. I, I don't really feel the need to share it with you. Um, it's good, it's chocolatey, it's, it's bad for me, it's all, this, it's all the things a boy could want in a, in a piece of candy. And, uh, and so I like it, and I don't really feel that inclined to, uh, to share it because there's only so much of it. And I know there's a full bucket over there, but I could still probably eat all of that in one sitting if I put my mind to it. And so I'm not going to share with you guys today. I'm sorry. I love you, but I'm, I'm not going to share with you. Now, that said, the question becomes, and perhaps you can help me with this, Noah, how much candy do you think I would need Until I wouldn't have a problem sharing it with you. A whole room full, maybe? Twice that, okay. All right, very good, there you go. Okay, so Noah thinks I would need an entire bedroom full twice over of candy before I would be willing to happily share it with you. Is there anybody in here, I'm just curious now, is there anybody in here that uh, would be willing to share candy if they had less than two bedroom fulls of it? Anybody? Okay. All right. Oh, Noah, Noah's raising his hand. Cool. There you go, Noah. Oh, twice the bucket. Oh, maybe I mis- misunderstood. Sorry, misunderstood. Twice the bucket. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. Noah, if Noah had two buckets of this candy, he would share some with you. And the truth is, I, you know, as much as I do love candy, I'm happy to share this with you guys as well. Just come up to me after the worship service, and I'll, I'll give you some candy. Not right now, but after the worship service. The question. That's a great question to ask. You know, We are so blessed here in North America. We have... Hot water, good food, nice warm roof over our head. We basically have all of our needs realistically. I mean, we don't really want for anything. We don't need anything. And yet, I just wonder, you know, sharing is one aspect of it, but why don't we love each other more in terms of not just sharing, but in a wide variety of things, such as serving each other or giving our time to each other? just talking to each other, or just investing in those small little ways, fellowship, Bible study, why why don't we? Why do those things not matter to us? As Paul puts it here, he says, I pray that your love would abound more and more. From the apostle's perspective, and I'm using candy to illustrate this, Our love should know no limit. It should be inexhaustible. It should be able to go on forever. He uses this word. Now, if I only had one bucket of candy, I probably wouldn't share. But what if I just had an inexhaustible lifetime supply of candy? At that point, sharing candy with you guys probably wouldn't make any difference to me. And so as you approach this passage here and you see where Paul says, I pray that your love would abound more and more, You might look at that and you might think, well, what Paul is saying there is that we would feel so intensely the love of Christ that we would just have an overflow of love to give to each other. But I don't think that that's exactly what he's saying here. If you look carefully at this word, abound, he says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now, this word abound... Sign, it, um It's an interesting word, literally fullness to ab- have abundantly, to go on and on, to be inexhaustible. That's, that's really what it means. The first time that it is really used with significance in the New Testament is by Jesus Christ in John chapter 10 verse 10. And he makes a statement in John 10:10, 10, 10, "The thief comes to steal, kill and destroy." But I came." that they may have life and have it abundantly. And there's that same word, that same Greek word, that our lives would abound, that we would see everything that we have here in this world, the beating heart in our chest, the air in our lungs, the time that we have to invest, the resources that we have to share and give with each other, Christ's saying there's two ways of looking at this world. There's the thief's perspective where limited resources, limited opportunities, a finite set amount of time, and it's all about me, me, me. So I can maximize my time, I can advance my position, I can increase my opportunities if I take from others. And that's his comparison there is... The thief comes to take, to steal, to kill, and to destroy for his own selfish purposes. And then Christ's contrast with that is, I'm not like that. I haven't come to steal, kill, destroy, take. I've come that you would have life exhaustively, unexhaustively. I don't know that I said that right that your life would know no limit, that your capacity to love, to share, to give would not be measurable, that it would abound. This is a prayer that recurs quite regularly in Paul as he's, as he's talking, specifically as he's praying for the abundance within the churches that he's ministered to. Um, he sees that their sign should continue to grow and grow and grow. And it's always a serious concern of the missionary apostle as he's as he's writing to his letters, it is the content of many of his admonitions and prayers. He desires in Romans 15:13 that the Romans might abound, using that same word abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. He admonishes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14:12 that they should strive to superabound. He em- overemphasizes the word, puts a prefix on the front of it, that they would superabound in the, in, the, in the gifts which the Holy Spirit has given to them, that they would edify each other within their church congregation. Writing again within that same letter in chapter 15, verse 58, he says that they should abound in the work of the Lord. He writes here, of course, to the Philippians that they would abound in their love. And uh, he, he writes to the Thessalonians that they would grow and abound in mutual love, one for another. And so it's, it's a common theme on and on and on and on throughout Paul's letters, that because of what Christ has done, we should be capable, we should have the capacity of knowing no limits to our love. In other words, it's not saying that we have been given so much love that we just can give and give and give. It's not like we're taking something that Christ has given to us and we're handing it on to somebody else, it's not like a train system here. It's a system different than that where Christ's love so transforms us, so alters us, so redeems us that we, as a, as a, as a result of our relationship with Jesus, we now overflow with love ourselves so that we can love other people. It's not really good enough to say, well, because Jesus loved me, I'm going to love you. Because I have to. Because he loved me. And, and I want to make sure you see that distinction. That's not a real understanding of love. And sometimes that's how we look at it. Well, Christ loved me. He came to this earth. He died on the cross. And so now it's kind of, because I've been forgiven of all these sins, and I, I, I know it, chain in effect, just like watching the dominoes tip over, uh, because he loved me, I should love you. It's kind of like saying, Johnny, I want you to take some of that candy because you have way too much of it already, and I want you to share it with your friend. So you go to your friend, you're like, here. And the guy's like, oh, of course, you know, at your age, you're probably like, woo, sweet. I don't care whether you want to give it to me or not. I'm going to take it. But to adults, it's like, uh, are you sure you want me to, you know, it's kind of awkward. It's like, you know, you don't have to give that to me if you don't want to. No, just take it. And I just worry that as Christians, that's sometimes how we approach the Christian life. This isn't my pulpit. <laughs> that's sometimes how we approach the Christian life. There's too many music stands going on over here, man. I'm walking all over the place. I don't know what I'm running into. <sighs> so that's sometimes how we approach the Christian life. But that would misunderstand the meaning of the word love. And this goes back to a deeper issue of what we think about when we think about love. Now, I could get into a lot of lexical mumbo-jumbo at this point. I can say, wow, there's four Greek words for love and blah, 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 and this and that and the other, and the Greek word being used here is agape. But you know what? I just kind of reject that understanding of the word. Yes, it's true. There are four different Greek words that emphasize different aspects of the word love. Yes, there's agape, and there's phileo, and there's storke, and then there's, there's eros, which isn't really used in the New Testament of the Christian's love for each other. I could get into all that, but the bottom line is, love is commanded by God, and as a result of what God does in our lives, we should have that emotion for each other. Now, it's true. The word used here in this passage is agape, which means that, specifically, if you want to get into lexical evidence, you love someone because of how what of an intrinsic worth they have. Not necessarily because they make you feel good, not necessarily because they scratch your back and you scratch their back, but because of just who they are. You should love them. That is technically the word used here. But again, I don't want to be too narrow-minded when we look at this word love because I don't think it reflects the totality of the teaching of the Scriptures. Have you ever really tried to define love? You know, I get in this conversation with people sometimes, and it just usually happens, we're talking about things that we love or whatever, and I, I, I will routinely ask, so how do you define the word love? And then, oh, oh you, know, why, uh, you know, it's not something we d- usually take a lot of time to really define or to think about. If I were to ask you right now how you would define love, if I were to ask every person in this room how you would define love, I'd probably get for each and every single one of you a slightly different answer. Love is selflessness. Love is that warm, fuzzy feeling that you get when your wife tells you that she loves you. Love is basically doing what is right for other people. Love is just doing what God wants you to do. Love is keeping God's commands. And we can go on and on and on and on and have a million and one different definitions of love. If you go to dictionary.com and you look it up, and I had an opportunity to do this this last week, you will find that there are 28 different definitions for the word love. In other words, within the English language, we're not even completely sure what it means. I mean, it ranges the whole gamut of possible meanings. The idea is that when we love, it's deep. It's almost indefinable. It, when we genuinely love each other, it, it's, it's part emotion, it's part what we're thinking, it's part what we're doing. It, it sort of encapsulates all that we are so that if we just try to define it in terms of our outward behavior that doesn't quite capture it because there, there is an inward, internal, emotional feeling to it, but that, that doesn't fully, accurately capture it. There, there is an intellectual capacity in terms of us trying to honor God as well. And it just sort of goes beyond an easy sort of crisp definition. The Bible isn't opposed to offering definitions for deep words. You just want to stick your finger there right quick and flip over with me to Hebrews chapter 11. If love is a strong component of the Christian faith, which it is, I mean, faith is equally strong. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible is not ashamed to give a crisp, succinct definition of a deep term. Faith. And here it is. The author of Hebrews is telling us what faith is. Faith is, Now he's going to define it, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Period. So the Bible defines faith. So then the question becomes, well, does the Bible at any point in time ever define love? And I know what you're about to say. You're about to say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the Bible defines love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Flip with me over there. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Now, I'm just going to say this as I have pondered the Scriptures. I have found every verse in the Bible from Genesis Revelation speaks to love. It speaks to truth, how we are to love each other in truth. It speaks to the purposes of love. It speaks to the results of love. It speaks to the source of love. It speaks to how we ought to love each other. It speaks to the way we should feel love, the way we should receive love. The Bible, every verse in the Bible, every story in the Bible, every passage in some way, shape, or form, it is speaking about the God of love who loves us. And it is informing us and instructing us in a million different ways about love. That's my conviction. And you come here to 1 Corinthians 13, and you're saying, no, this is the passage. This is where love is defined. But if you look at it closely, you'll see love isn't defined, it's described. Love is described in terms of what it does. Look at it. Love is patient. Well, there you go. So love is patient. What is that really love? Could I say patience is love? No, not necessarily. That doesn't quite capture it. Well, love is kind, okay? So love goes out and does nice things for people. So if you go out and you do nice things for people, is that love? Well, it might be, but it might not be. It goes on. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And over and over again, as you're looking at these, these are all actions that love engages in. Over and over again, it's not defining love. It's telling you what love is does, how love is, how it operates. And he says here, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all all things. And from that, I conclude that whereas faith is something intangible that goes on inside our heart, and the scripture is not afraid or embarrassed at all to define faith as something intangible going on in your heart, when it comes to love, the Bible sort of just assumes that you'll get it, that the whole Bible is the definition of love, and that here in 1 Corinthians 13, this is a succinct description of how love acts, because love that does not express itself in outward action is not love at all. That's what I want you to see from 1 Corinthians 13. The Bible does not define in quick, easy terms of love when it talks of love, and specifically here in 1 Corinthians 13, when it talks about love, it is describing what love does, which means you can feel whatever emotion you want to feel in your heart, and you can think whatever you want to think in your mind, but at the end of the day, if the emotions and the truths that you're meditating on and feeling in your soul do not work themselves out into some sort of a tangible interaction with the person sitting across from you, or your neighbor down the street, or a member of your family, whatever that is that you are feeling or thinking, if it does not express itself and outward interaction with other people, it is not love. Love is found in the exchange. That's love. And if that's not your definition of love, then I pray that would become your definition of love. Because when Paul writes here in Philippians chapter 1 that our love abounds more and more, there is no way to wrap your mind around that without understanding that from Genesis to Revelation, all of this is necessary to define the God who is love and how we, through Him, ought to love each other. You don't believe me? We'll go back to Philippians chapter 1. Look what he says here. It is my prayer that your love, this again is that possibly emotional, possibly intellectual sensation, feeling, that you have, but it only counts as love when it's working itself out, interacting with each other through love. That love would abound more and more, look at what he says here, with knowledge and all discernment. Two Greek words here, one is fairly common, one is very rare. First one, knowledge, epignosko. It's a compound, it's a preposition and then regular word for knowledge, gnosko. Um, it means knowledge. It means basically an a in-depth understanding. It's the intensified form of it. So what Paul is saying here is that you would love, that you would love each other, but that you would love each other within knowledge. In other words, when you love each other, if there's no understanding of truth or how God wants you to love people, you can engage in a lot of actions, which in our own carnal, sinful, fleshly man we might think is loving, but God, again, defines love in His Word. Which means that if you try to engage or interact with people according to your own views of what love is and not according to what the Bible says, then you haven't really hit love. And Paul is clear here in the first passage. He says, I want you to love each other within knowledge. That's the first thing. And so we come back to the candy illustration. I've got lots of candy here. Now, a base desire of mine, if I love myself and I love my friends, is to say, you know what? I've got all this candy. No, I've got all this candy. And uh, how about you and me? I'm loving you at this point. I, at least I tell myself that I am. You and me, we just sit down, and I've got two bedrooms. I've got, just to draw it all the way out, I've got two bedrooms filled up to the ceiling with candy. And let's just see how fast we can eat it. Does that sound like a plan, Noah? He's kind of intrigued. <laughs> now, if we did that, it would taste good. Don't, don't get me wrong. I would like it. I think I would like it. I don't know if I would still like it after two bedrooms, but it would taste good. But then I'd have a horrible stomach ache. I'd probably retch and vomit. That sugar overload, you know, it'd cause all kinds of cavities within my teeth. I'd have to then go pay money to see a dentist. And overall, it'd be bad. Don't get me wrong, kids. Halloween is fun, but there are prices to pay for that sort of thing. And so, mom and dad have knowledge and though you would love to share your candy with your friends and go and eat until you're sick to the stomach, true love requires that you have an appreciation for what is truly beneficial to each other. Now, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceived, is self-deceptive, who can understand it? In other words, you and me, though we might be intellectual, well-read, uh, we might be well-versed on all the different philosophies of life and studied up on politics and political intrigue and we can tell you what the best way to go about running the country is and all this sort of stuff. Those scriptures say you don't know anything. And even if you spend all your life studying and learning outside of the Bible, you still don't know anything. The knowledge that is necessary to engage in genuine love is found right here in this book, from Genesis to Revelation, every last verse. And to ignore any one part of it is to say, I'm only going to love so much to ignore any one part of the book and how it speaks to us and how we should interact with each other is to say that my love will not abound to the fullness that Paul is praying for. The Bible offers knowledge. It tells us how we ought to love. We're called to love. And so if we're going to do it right, we've got to do it according to knowledge. next word there is eisthesis from which we get our English word, aesthetic, it has to do with the perceptions, the sensory perceptions, and, and it's talking about having discernment, uh, that is a valid translation of the word, but it's a discernment, an ability to distinguish between that which is good and that which is bad, as a result of experience, having sensed it, kind of, a, if you're a tactile person, you, you rub your fingers along something smooth, and oh, that feels nice, and Or you rub your fingers along something really, really rough and jagged like a piece of sandpaper and you think, oh man, that doesn't feel good at all. And so what the Bible is saying here, what Paul is saying here is that your love, the ability that you have to love each other is going to require two things. Number one, it's going to require that you know the word. That you are students, that you are striving after knowledge of love, which is found clearly within the revelation of God, within the scriptures. But then, having had that knowledge and practically applying it into your life, that you would then become sharp in distinguishing between true love versus false love, what this world characterizes as love, and what God characterizes as love that your knowledge of love, that your ability to love each other would be grounded in discernment and the ability to distinguish between what is legitimate and false and knowledge according to God's word. Now, don't miss that. If you do not have the knowledge and then the ability to discern in real life between legitimate and false love, then you will not be able to grow in Your love—it's that simple. And then the final end conclusion of this that we're going to look at today, verse ten. So that you may approve what is excellent. Now I know that's chopping it off right there in verse ten, but you need to know that is—we have a a hina purpose result clause in middle of in middle of verse ten, and I'm going to look at that next week. But this is where that train of thought comes to an end. The subject, the the main idea here is that Paul is praying that you would love more and more. That love is described within the sphere or the realm of God's knowledge and Christian discernment to the result, to the effect that you would be able to approve what is excellent. So God's desire for you is that you would agree with him about what is excellent that's my greatest fear for us in this room we go after good things but do we ain't go after great things we go after things that are wonderful but do we have to go after things that are amazing or do we sacrifice the amazing with a contentment for what is normal? Do we sacrifice what is excellent for what is just typical within our church family? As you consider the people sitting next to you in this room right now, would you say that your love for each other is growing and abounding and increasing? Or would you characterize it as sort of a cooling a lukewarm sort of wavering. As you consider the people in this room and the relationships you have with them, Paul's prayer here for you and those relationships you have with each other is that your passion, that your, your love, your zeal for each other, according to knowledge and Christian discernment, would grow and grow and grow and grow more and more and more and more so that you could approve what is excellent now you look at that word and you're like so the passage here is saying that we should then decide what is excellent no 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 no. what is excellent has already been revealed what is excellent has already been taught to us what is excellent has already been recorded in the scriptures There's a difference between what God is saying and then you taking that and applying that in your life, and then at the end of that obedience, you realize on the backside, looking back, it was better to do it this way. In other words, you come all the way down here, and you look back, and you're like, I could have done this, or I could have done that. I didn't really understand what God was wanting me to do, but I understood that He was God, and this is what He wanted, so I chased after it, and I loved it and I cared for people, and I, I served people. And on the back side of that, of investing in those relationships, as I look back, I agree now on this side of it, that what God was asking me to do was really the best thing all along. You come to the end of it and you're like, if I had done it any differently than exactly what God had asked me to do, then I would have been a greatly impoverished Christian. There are better things in life, Studio 32-7 kids, than a bucket full of chocolate candy. And conversely, moms and dads, you're chasing after trick-or-treats too. There are better things in life than a house full of goodies. There are better things in life than a garage full of toys. There are better things in life than all the material possessions you could chase after. I hope you haven't left. If you have, I want you to just flip back with me to 1 Corinthians 13, and I want you to see something. We're going to go all the way back to verse 1. To really understand love. And the word used here in 1 Corinthians 13 is agape, that oh, you should just love it because it's the right thing to do, because it has an intrinsic value here, right? That's how we often hear it talked about. Just look at what he says here. He says, again, 1 Corinthians 13:1, he says if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, well, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all men mysteries and have all knowledge and if if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love I am nothing if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned the ultimate form of love dying for somebody else but have not love look at what he says here last word I gain nothing now when we come to this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 about love we tend to think like I said oh it's just our job right God loved us we should love other people and we do it we do these cold heartless acts of diligence because we're supposed to but you'll notice that in the great discussion on love in 1 Corinthians 13 the verse preceding it verse 3 coming into verse 4 he makes a statement, I, I gain nothing if I don't have love. Which means that love is not necessary, necessarily a cold, heartless duty, but that in the doing of love, it profits you in some way. You, you gain something out of it. In other words, he, he's using personal gain, personal enrichment as a motivation for how you ought to love each other. That's the argument preceding what he's about to say. And then he goes on to say, this is what you need to do. You need to do this and that. Be patient, be kind, don't be arrogant, don't be rude, blah, blah, blah. And he goes on. But all of it within context is that you should be seeking to gain something. When I come home, maybe today, and my wife is there in the kitchen, I will say to her, Look, honey, I brought you some chocolate. Because I love you. And I'll give it to her. And and she'll say, Oh, that's great. I love you too. Thank you so much. It means so much to me that you you love me. I'll say, Oh, I'm getting kind of worked up here. It's just my job. I'm just supposed to do it because I married you. Now, Some of us, that's exactly how we're loving each other in this room. In other words, like I said, we look too closely at these lexical difference between agape and phileo and all of this, and all well, this is agape, so it's saying that you know, this is the deepest form of love and we should just love somebody because you know they have some sort of intrinsic value and it's just the right thing to do. But if I loved my wife that way, my marriage wouldn't last. If I did everything... Just right with Shanti. I did all my chores on time. I was quick on taking the trash out to the curb every week. And, and I was just, you know, grass mowed to flawless perfection. House, perfect maintenance, honey honeydew list, totally cleaned and cleared every week. And I was flawless in the execution of my duties as a husband to her. But there was no heart in it. If I didn't feel any sense of I want to make you happy. That kind of cold, lifeless love after a season would produce coldness and lifelessness in her as well. I know the text uses the word agape. And I know what that word means. But, okay, you have an intrinsic worth that I should love. Does that intrinsic worth that I should love because it's the right thing to do, is is that worth not valuable enough that I should enjoy loving you? Is that that value that you have, if it's truly precious, truly valuable, truly you're created in the image of God, and should I just sort of have a, a cold indifference towards you? Okay, because, you know, you are created in the image of, god i guess i'll do some good things for you or does that not become the ultimate insult who who really wants to be loved by somebody that just is doing it because they have to who who does that Nobody in this room wants to be loved that way. We want to think of ourselves as we ought. And there's nothing wrong with this, that because of the way God has made us unique, special, created in the image of God, that not only do we deserve to be loved in the sense that people will reach out and take an interest in our lives and, and service, but that they actually might enjoy it. That they might enjoy us as people. That they might desire our company in our presence. That they might enjoy conversation with us for no other reason than they like us. If love doesn't include like, then is that really love or some strange, grotesque form of legalism? Have we not just perverted the gospel into the very thing we tell ourselves we don't want to turn it into? Jesus Christ did not come to this earth to die on the cross because he had to. Jesus Christ did not spend six hours enduring torture and agony because God wanted him to. He did it because He loved you personally, not in the sense that, oh, well, I have to because they're created in the image of my Father, but because He likes you as well. We've been working our way through these prayers, and and Paul prays in Ephesians, man, I pray that you will get the gospel. There's no way to understand Philippians 1 if you don't understand Ephesians 1 through 3, that God loves you with a passionate. He enjoys you. He wants to be with you. You're his inheritance. As I said two weeks ago, you're his retirement plan. You're his 401k. He wants to be with you because he likes you. That's why he goes through all of this trouble. That's why he goes through all of this turmoil. Not that there's anything in us that is worthy of being liked, but he just says he wants to. That's love. When you don't even really like the person, but you want to be with them. They do things that rub you the wrong way. They do things that are sinful and wicked, but you just cherish them deeply from the heart. If your love abounds more and more with knowledge and discernment, the text says, quite simply, that you will approve what is excellent to the praise and glory of God the Father. If your love is a cold, sterile love, you're not loving the way the Scriptures command. If your love is a formal duty, it becomes a legalism, and it is not gospel-driven. That is not the love Paul is asking for here. Which then begs the question, you know, like, I come to this church every week, and, you know, sometimes I just have a hard time loving some of the people in this room. I understand. You notice how he begins it. He says, I pray that your love would abound more and more. To really love each other the way that God loves us. That's something that can only be done by the grace of God. It's something that can only be done if God enables you to do it. It's something that you can only do If the Father genuinely remakes you, transforms you, regenerates you, and radically, fundamentally alters your life from start to finish. And you can't really understand how God loves you until you really step out and try to love in those difficult times, those difficult people. So Paul's prayer is that your love would abound. Because of the abounding love you have received, it changes you, it transforms you, and now you're able to genuinely love, not as a duty, not as an obligation, but for your gain. Like I said, I love my wife, and I serve her because I love her. And she brings me a lot of joy. Anybody that's been married longer than a few years knows that there are ups and downs within a marriage. There are struggles, there are arguments, disagreements. But I'm crazy about the girl. Shanti makes me feel amazing. God makes me feel amazing. You ought to be capable of making each other feel Amazing. That's what he's praying for. Do you feel amazing this afternoon? In Second Corinthians, there's a dispute. The church at Corinth, I've spoken to this before, they had a lot of problems. Paul is attempting to be reconciled with this problematic church, and he's written multiple letters to them. Four letters we have two of them preserved for us within the scriptures, and he makes a statement. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11, he says, "We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. He says, "Our heart is wide open. It's wide open. It says, "You are not restricted by us. we're not restricting you." but you are restricted in your own affections. You're restricted in your own affections. As C.S. Lewis once said, I don't find that the passions of the Christian life are too strong, but that they are too timid. And Paul's statement in verse 13 is, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. And so we can go on chasing after things like candy and a bucket full of treats. It is the season of the year for that sort of pursuit. I think you know though that whatever candy you might get in this life, it's better with a friend. I think you know, I hope you know, I pray you know that the pleasure a friend brings you the joy of that companionship far surpasses all the candy in the world. So are you chasing buckets of candy or are you chasing after friends? Are you chasing after chocolate or are you chasing after love? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we we know you are wrapped in light and glory. You had no need of anything, and you were in want of nothing. But you just wanted us because you loved us. God, I pray that we would love each other, not with a legalistic, dutiful sort of perversion of love, but that we would make each other happy, that we would make each other feel amazing, that we would genuinely seek after each other, that we would love each other. God, I know that that can never happen in this church or any church unless we widen our hearts. And we can never widen our hearts unless we pray and we ask you to do it. So I'm asking you, Lord, as the Apostle Paul prayed on behalf of the Philippians, I pray on behalf of Bridge Baptist Church. God, would you show us that loving each other brings joy and happiness, and would you then empower us to do it the way you do it for us? God, I pray our love would abound more and more. ask these things in Jesus' name. We hope that you've been challenged and encouraged by God during our time together in the scriptures. While it is our purpose to provide sound biblical teaching to all who are interested, our prayer is that you would be involved in a local church of your own because true spiritual growth cannot occur apart from the fellowship of the church. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time at Bridge Baptist Church.